welcome back to March Mad Men. This is part two of our in-depth review of David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills. Episode one was a non-spoiler discussion, and this one takes off the gloves to pound away at the frustrating shortcomings of the film, while also recognizing its slasher movie strengths. Here we go. Okay, beware anyone who has not watched Halloween Kills and gives a shit about it. We are going to start disclosing things about the movie that uh, may be construed as spoilers. So, no holds barred the rest of the way. Let's get our hands dirty, fellas. Let's get into the bloody organs of this film and tear it all apart. Halloween Kills. All right. One way to kick this off would be to touch on some highlights and lowlights. Like in my notes, I kind of just when I'm like thinking about how do I think about this movie, I started a list of good things and I put them in the order of that they occurred to me and uh, a list of bad things in the order that they occurred to me. And I just kind of, you know, spent 10 minutes jotting all this down. Uh, tonight. This wasn't like watching the movie. So I'll throw out a few of the good ones and uh, let's just see if that, you know, sparks any comment from you guys and if it dovetails into your, your own perceptions. So the first you know thing I wrote. Wait, I'm sorry, John, I'm going to interrupt you. You know what's great about that? Mm-hmm. Is this going to mirror the structure of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally just, stream of consciousness. Yep, just throw it out there, yeah. and uh, and then we'll and then we'll cut to Will Patton in the hospital talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Will Patton is definitely going to come up here for sure. Uh, <laughs> I think the first thing, if you ask me, what did I like about this movie? The kills are the first thing because you know I've been watching all of these mediocre slasher movies, and a lot of the time it's a lot of boredom. But you know, hey, there were three pretty good kills. Whether it was Tom Savini doing the effects, or K and B, or you know, there's two or three people that were really active. I'm mostly talking about the movie from, movies from the '80s here that you know would would go on to have great uh, careers in makeup and physical effects. And oftentimes these were the movies that they were getting their their first start in. To see some like just viscerally impressive kills in a day where you know we've we've over the last twenty five years like we've had periods where they would use CGI and there would be fake cartoony blood spraying out and or there would be constant annoying cuts where it would be implied what would happen but you wouldn't see it or any number of things that we've gone through with the vagaries of the fashions of what the MPAA would allow or whatever. Well, this movie, like they deliver the goods in terms of gore. We've got eye gougings. We've got that fluorescent light bar in the throat. We've got a knife point poking out of the eye socket. It delivers the goods in that department, in my opinion. Let's so yeah, let's start there. Did you guys, is that on your good list? Did it matter to you? That's one of the highlights. This Again, you're talking about the slasher film. The violence, the quality of kills, what we talked about it in the Haunted House films, that matters in a horror film. You know, it is something that, that people come to. The Eli Roths of the horror fan base who are just like, I want gory, practical effect kills by the dozens and boobs. And that's all I care about. 
And like that's almost soured me on wanting to be like, yes, the kills were good. I, that was one of the things that they did really well because that's such a huge and just thoroughly obnoxious part of the horror fan base. And I'm sorry because I know you're listening to this. You're being pushed to be post gore or something in your in your horror fandom because of the <laughs> the sort of idiocy like, of right, gorehounds. Yeah, like it's the internal conflict. Yes, I don't want to be a douchebag about it, but. Yeah, the kills are good in this. It's solid. It's. I will say the one thought that occurred to me is the variety of weapons felt like the the Jasonifying of Michael Myers. That he is usually hands and knives, and to see him using this chainsaw from the the firefighters and the broken light bulb and all the other the, the different implements felt a little out of character for him but that's that's neither here nor there but to be fair he uses yeah. his hands plenty and the knives plenty right it's not like they weren't represented oh no yeah no, no i wouldn't i wouldn't say that at all i i found the kill like you brought the light bulb example which i think was a was a shiny example while i really enjoyed the kill on just a strictly like horror loving level there was also like an element of like prop comedy to it you know like he literally like kind of looks around the room and it's like ah what are the, he does know, he does like, what do you do for a living okay like uh light bulb what can i do with this there were certainly easier ways to to go about it and i guess there wasn't Wait, like a did you lot not like that because like that was i was alluding to that earlier like that was one of the moments where I was like, I can see the wheels turning in his head. And it was kind of interesting and fun. And yeah, not entirely uncomedic, I guess. But where he like, he looks at it, he looks at her, he pulls it down, he breaks it on the counter. I can see the, how it's uh, you know progressing in his mind. But why does he care? Because the scene confirms that there is a bevy of knives available to him yes, in his are. kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, why does he then go? It's like it's like Bruce Willis in the uh, in the pawn shop, you know? Like, like why does he then choose to go for like a fluorescent light bulb, which is like not necessarily like a, a guaranteed kill or, or even like the easiest thing to go for, especially when he's proven himself to be such a sort of like efficient and like motivated killer. Also, is there a reason why he even kills those people? Is there? there there's no. There, no. He just does, right? And like, just like moves on. Yeah. He attacks him with a small drone, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like drones. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, like, who can who can blame him? I wish we'd seen um, like those off-camera shots where apparently she pilots the drone around the corner into like the dark area of of the house, and it just rebounds off of his head or whatever happens. Yeah. <laughs> I assumed he swatted it like a fly. <laughs> yeah, the second time, because like, I think it, it bounces that, off of him twice. I, that's actually basically what I got from it, was it seemed like he just kind of swatted it down. But, but yeah, I don't know, the, the light bulb kill, like, I, I, didn't, I didn't dislike it. I'm not sure quite where it fits into his character, but it, just as a standalone moment, it was fine. I actually did really like the scene where he, immediately after, where he's just stabbing knife after knife into the guy's body, and then picks up one knife and is like, yeah, this one will work. <laughs> and that's the second thing I was alluding to earlier where I was like really interested in, are we somehow adding something or progressing our understanding or changing even our understanding of how Michael operates or how he thinks? Because I don't entirely know what, what he was doing there. So he, he, he just seems to grab a knife and stab it grab a knife and stab it into the back of this poor guy who's slumped over the kitchen island. 
then he he grabs maybe the last knife or the best knife and in a second he decides oh i'm just keeping this one and then he leaves so do you did you guys read that as this knife sucks this knife sucks what am i going to do with it well i'm just going to plant it in the dude's back and then he's like mm-hmm. oh this knife feels good all right i'm out of here was was that how yeah. that played that was that was my take yeah John, I just want to point out that that's also the character moment that I was referring to as far as expanding Michael's stuff. I just did a much better job of keeping it spoiler-free for <laughs> the people that, that didn't know what scene it was. And so then when you came in and were like, there's a scene with a kitchen and a light bulb and some knives <laughs> and Teddy yeah, but- from Rescue Me. <laughs> Sorry, that's just the act. That's what I thought when I saw that actor. Uh, um, I also just want to point out, I my note literally says that old people with a drone seems like a weird choice. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of weird choices. It's a weird choice, though. I felt like this was Danny McBride's contribution to the screenplay, like coming up with, all right, how do we make these random victims not cliches? And, uh-huh. you know, how do we make them weird, but like who could be weird in Haddonfield in Illinois? And that's that's who we get from primarily these two couples that get murdered in the in the course of the film. Because, yeah, they're quirky. They're all four of them are quirky people. Uh, definitely <laughs> two, two Big John and Little John. Weirdos. What? Two pairs of innocuous, innocuous weirdos. Right. But, you know, again, like. What fundamentally works and what fundamentally doesn't and setting up people that once we've seen him dispatch some of the most, okay, they're not fighters, but well, they're firefighters, but you know, fit men with powerful equipment and he just John wicks the shit out of them. And we'll probably talk about that more along the way, but he dispatches these firefighters and then everything after that is like, I have no suspense if a guy's got a bat or a little cheese knife or, you know, whatever you hand these ordinary schmoes. I just know that Michael is going to come in there and he's going to kill him. So there's not any real tension to it. And I think that's one of the fundamental flaws of this movie is that Michael has become a supervillain. He's Thanos at this point. So anyone who comes within 10 feet of him, he's going to snap his fingers and they're going to, they're going to die. So many scenes in this movie are acting like, I I don't know how we're supposed to feel. Are we supposed to be just be like chuckling sadistically as we watch these people creep around their house? Like, Oh shit, what's going on? Is there somebody here? We're all like, you're fucking toast. (laughs) But You know, is, is, is that, is that the ultimate, is that the best reaction to Coke's, out of a viewer of a horror film? I, I, I'm not sure. Do you think that the, the opening with the firefighters really damaged the film sort of going forward? In this respect, it did. So, yeah, beyond the kills, the next thing that I, I feel obligated to mention would be the soundtrack. I really love the score in this film. J- John Carpenter's at least you know mostly responsible for a lot of it. There's a scene where Lindsay Kyle Richards confronts Michael at the SUV uh, after he's just killed Marion and the nurse guy. And there's a great track there that's very, it's original, 
but it's evocative of Halloween, if that makes any sense. I can tell you right now that if I can track that down, the audience will have already heard it because that will be the lead into this episode. Nothing else like screamed out at me, but I just like the music in this, in this film. Look, the original score remains effective. I think they do a good job of like of updating it, especially in the, the last two movies. Um, you know, and like Carpenter's certainly had like had a bit of uh, have a bit of a like mainstream resurgence, and the work that he does with his son. You know, they're continuing to like do albums and and still do like relatively interesting music. So, I like it. I mean, I would say that it is less and less of a standout star. You know, as you progressively move towards the films, but part of that's just like exposure. You're just sort of used to it. And, and again, I, I call back to like, I really enjoy the opening titles of this movie because it's pressing the right buttons that it's that it's intending to press. But there's part of the fact that this score still lives on in, in the way that it does. And the fact that they are still trying to evoke the style of this of the of the 70s and the style of the original in a way that makes it feel a little more, you know, derivative with with each passing use and, and less of a truly um you know effective like or, or original conceit but i mean like there's no arguing that like it's one of the greatest if not the greatest like score in horror or any genre really yeah it's incredible um that that synth that just incredible methodical beat that it has it just uh there's such a a, a momentum and a chilling purpose and intent that goes with it Let's move on to uh, the next thing that I put on my list. And I don't know how much there is to say about this, but on my good list was the Ben Tramer reference. And uh, I was watching this with uh, Mike Kuchek, who uh, used to uh, sit in Rich's seat on this podcast. And uh, we, I think we both just kind of cheered when we heard the name uh, Ben Tramer. It dropped. And it's absolutely meaningless, and nothing comes of it in the film, but we were both hoping that like somehow we would get that. Oh, okay. Ben Tramer is going to be in this movie in, in, in some way. It kind of feels like a mistake that, that he's not. What, what do you think? There is a weird mythology attached to the name Ben Tramer, largely because he's not seen in the first film. And since the second film film didn't happen in this timeline, I mean, it's, it's like it's like Harry Lyme in The Third Man, right? Like, everybody <laughs> just wants to know, what happened to Ben Tramer? Now, I remember that Will Patton brings him up, right, in the hospital. But does he give what, – what was the context? Does he say, like, where is Ben Tramer? Is he, is he running a used car lot? Is he – he all, all he talks about is he just mentions that, like, he had a thing. Like, he had, he had a brush with Laurie at some point that they were accounting where it's like they kissed outside of a bar – and then he just says, like, oh, I wanted it to be, like, more between us, but I knew you had a thing for Ben Tramer. And I'm like, that's it. Uh, yep. Yeah. So I'm going to assume that in Halloween Ends, it's really just the Ben Tramer story. <laughs> it's just the whole – it's everything that's happened up to this point from the perspective of Ben Tramer. I can't wait to see who they would cast as Ben Tramer in that because uh, it, it could be anyone. And apropos of nothing, but it is casting related. Uh, I had I read on the Wikipedia, which pleased me for some reason, that Tommy Doyle, who ultimately is played by 
an actor that we're we're all fond of, you know, in in some way, which is Anthony Michael Hall, at least if you grew up in the eighties. But they did approach Paul Rudd, who played him in one of the sequels that the continuity has written off or excised, but did play an older version of Tommy Doyle, and he was apparently interested, but he, he was busy doing a, another movie that he, you know, it it just was a scheduling conflict, but imagine if Paul Rudd was playing Tommy Doyle in this movie and how that would connect the universes and just be fun to see. I, I I would have absolutely loved to have seen that. I have to say that Paul Rudd was so bad in Halloween (laughs) six. Yeah. That, I would not like to see it. But he I had his it, moments. I get the appeal, but... <laughs> it was a very twitchy performance. I mean, we picked uh-huh. it apart, but it also uh-huh. had its charms, did it not? And... I mean, it's Paul Rudd. Of course it's charming. Right, right. <laughs> I just... I think that that would have... Like, when you talk about fan service and, you know, nerdy Easter eggs and stuff, I think somehow making a direct connection to that particular entry in the franchise with that particular actor would have been worth doing. And it would have just been interesting how he played this character differently. I'm sure he would have played it differently. But it was nice to see Anthony Hall get some work was one of the things on my good list. So Good point. Probably I, I, the only the only cast list that read Paul Rudd and then Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> right. Uh, I, no, I, I will I, say. I mean, again, talking about the things that we liked about it, I thought Anthony Michael Hall was very good. It's a. I mean, it's a, it's not an easy part the way that it's written because the dialogue is so clunky and the characters <laughs> confusing. Oh, but I thought he I thought he did a very good job with it. I thought he played it well. He seemed again like you're you're building up to a lot of big moments with him. He has a lot of big speeches and I thought he wielded the bat very well, which the I mean the bat really becomes almost a character the way that they they frame it and what does it say, Mr. Huckleberry on it or something? Like yeah. uh I, I thought he was he was up to this part. I was mostly impressed with him. Yeah, I had a similar sort of reaction to it. I mean, I, he plays like the angry, like Midwestern white male, hmm. you know, hmm. like well, without making him completely unlikable. Like, I think that there are, there's definitely a way that you play that character in which they just become a sort of a, a disgusting like character. And I thought that he still had like just enough warmth to him to not feel like he was a villain. Um, and, and, and I think it came like pretty close a, a, a few times, but like you ultimately got these little moments, like I'm reminded like there, there's a, a riot within the hospital, which I don't think we've touched on yet, but I would, I would like to actually delve into that second we will. movie, um, at Let's, some point. Let's save that for low lights, Rich. Uh, but you know there's at least like a moment in there where it's like, he's sort of like leading the charge and then he's eventually like convinced by, by Judy Greer that like, it's, it's that they're they're doing like the wrong thing and and like I I actually found the believability in in his eyes to be not pandering but to actually be a a pretty like decent and like believable character turn for him. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think he he doesn't read in a really obvious and broad way, which is great. Yeah, you don't just dismiss him as, okay, he's a foil, he's an antagonist, you know, he's a he's clueless and he's he's in the movie to cause problems. Like it's it's more ambiguous than that. It's more yeah, you 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 don't see him and doubt the sincerity of what he's trying to do. And you don't even see him like do things where you're just like, well, he is a complete idiot. And I know it's the blind leading the blind. So I, I think they actually handled that character and his role in the story with a degree of sophistication. Although it does, his character, like Laurie's, sort of begs the question that he was in the, the vague vicinity of something bad that happened 40 years ago. And is somehow every Halloween like giving this big speech to Bart? I did you guys get right. the impression like does he do this every year? Yeah, why I don't now? I think so. I mean, that the, the bartender certainly says that they are there every Halloween. I mean, maybe the bigger question is like, why is the bar holding a talent contest every Halloween? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to entertain your query, Vic, they certainly say that they cut that they are there every year but it's unclear whether or not he gives a speech. I got the feeling that the speech was part of like the like 40th anniversary of, of everything. You know, the, the weirdest part about the speech is that he explains that Lonnie asked him to come up and give the speech. And Lonnie introduces him as a, as a bird whistler. I was definitely confused about that little, yeah. little gem of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm not going to bird whistle for you, but yeah, I mean, all of that felt reasonably authentic in a ramshackle, realistic way, you know, where it's not really explicit what's going on or why, but it, it had kind of a slice-of-life vibe. I don't have any big problems with that whole scene. Like, that's actually, I, I think one of my feelings about this movie is the first half is markedly better than the second half. I can't put my finger on where it really goes off the rails or even if it completely derails. But I do know that even the second time I saw the movie, I'm, you know, more with it and consistently entertained and intrigued. And then we get to a part and definitely the hospital riot is bullseye of that part where I just lose my faith in the movie and it, it stops working for me, essentially. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because I actually think that you can probably trace the, the, the moment where the, it begins to go off the rails, where it, where it hits the proverbial penny on the tracks hmm. is when they introduce the second in escapee inmate at the bar. Like mm -hmm. that's really where that whole like B plot originates. Um, by the way, I'm going to take this moment to say that I still care about being seasonally appropriate, <laughs> and I am opening and enjoy by 1031. Um, definitely a Halloween-themed beer, none of this Christmas bullshit. <laughs> and we've had episodes where you, you had to just say it was an enjoy by, but you wouldn't mention the date. So this is great, uh, because yeah, when we start our season two... Uh, we may have to be a lot more coy about this kind of stuff because uh, you're not going to be listening to it two days after uh, we record it. Sorry to let you all know how the sausage is made. But, um, yeah, Vic, are you drinking anything new? Anything to report? Anything special? 
nothing special. It's a it's a Christmas edition. It's it's really just a, a holly pureed with uh, cognac. No, it's uh, uh, I'm just drinking a brother a brother Thelonious, the Belgian Abbey style ale. Actually, the, I like the, I like I like holly pureed with cognac. Vic. That was a good stretch. That was awesome. <laughs> Well, I have poured a uh, a shot in my. I had the skull mug before for the 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 rum and coke, and now I have a skull shot glass uh, of Templeton Rye six year. So mm. it's a nice little aged rye. It's delicious. Let me have a little sip here. Mmm. But I'm trying to break this guy's uh, to you softly in my Oktoberfest mug. That I got at Big Bear for Oktoberfest 2018 or 2019. I have a Oktoberfest beer in there, but it is non-alcoholic. So wow. that might be part of my downshifting in future podcasts because I kind of have high blood pressure now and I have to watch my alcohol intake. Being middle-aged really sucks, guys. Get ready for more of this, folks. You're listening. <laughs> All right, it's let's move be, along. It's going to be hemorrhoids and cholesterol and high blood pressure from here on yeah. out. There's yeah. going to be a fascinating proctology anecdote in the next episode. <laughs> oh, God, no. I mean, yeah, that is very much in my future. Uh, it sucks. I just want to say for the record... John is much, much older than me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 46, guys. So yeah, um, I'm not I'm not that far behind you, buddy. I'm, I'm, I'm looking down the barrel of uh, a 50 here. So yeah, that's I'm only 41. I still got four years till the doctor sticks a finger up my ass. <laughs> well. Um, it happens to the best of us guys. I'll tell you that. And it beats the alternative. Yes. I just sort of pivoted to the discussion of the, the other inmate. If oh, you right. want to go that route. Yes. That's a whole, that's a whole conversation. I absolutely hated that entire part of the movie. I don't understand. I mean, yeah, other than this heavy handed critique of, group think and people just following anyone who has a strong opinion and the perils of that, which obviously we've had many reminders of, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, it's topical, but I just kind of found it just ridiculous. And watching that chubby little man stumble around uh, you know, trying to to find a safe place. I think it's the worst scene in the movie, guys. The hospital set piece where the escaped inmate is being hounded into jumping out the window. It's just boring. Yes. Yeah. It is boring. It is boring. Even though it's like frenetically cut and everybody's, you know, over the top and the drama is cranked to 12 it's on the scale. It's still boring. The only nice thing I have to say about it is the gore effect is good when we see a splattered corpse on the fucking pavement. Yeah, that was that was top notch. Mm-hmm. 
And I also, I, there was a big part of me that on the one hand, like I understand. And I think like one of the loose ends for me of the Halloween franchise in general is like, Michael is constantly escaping and there's just, there's just myriad other lunatics that escape along with him. But like, we never find out what happens to any of them. You know what I mean? Like the first Halloween they roll up and there's just, there's just people milling around uh, who are presumably very dangerous, but that we never sort of catch up with that. And so I can see the conversation where somebody's like, who else was on that bus with Michael, with Michael Myers when he escaped? What happened to that guy? And then that sort of leads them to to this thread where, of where they're going. Except truly, like in a town where you are stricken with terror about this mass murderer who is going through and slaughtering people sort of left and right. Even not sure how much of the of that the crowd actually knows at that point. But that guy. Oh, they do like know Vic. Walks to the hospital and everybody goes, "Oh my God, it's Michael Myers!" It's like. Really? All right. Tommy said previous to that scene, he killed the first responders in so many words. He knows that 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 Michael killed all the, you know, whatever cops, paramedics, firefighters, whoever came to Lori's house when it burned down. So he knows what Michael, this Michael, like the 2018 Michael is capable of. And that makes the storyline with the tubby, stumbling, disoriented mental patient even worse. How could it be this pathetic, shuffling little man? I don't buy it for one fucking second. How do they? And they clearly draw the character that way to make him sympathetic. They want mm-hmm. us to be like, oh God, the, the terror that's been inflicted on this poor guy who just happened to be on the same bus with Michael Myers. So, uh, yeah, it just, it, it doesn't work. Not a bit of it. The, the other thing that I find that's equally just kind of like sad from a production point of view is that Jamie Lee Curtis is given so little to do in this movie. She literally hangs out on a hospital bed for the entire film. And the one bit of business that she is given is to get up and participate in this like fit of rage and like, like knee, like a a security guard in the balls um, only to like fall over from her wound and then have to be returned back to her hospital room. Like this is the one opportunity to get your, your icon out into this, this world that you've built. And this is what you do with it. I'm so glad you brought that up. The absurdity, like if you want to drill into one of the stupidest things, choices that a movie could make, a movie like this, is that, yeah, we're like, all right, Lori's up, let's ride, you know, like she's in her clothes, she's going to go do something, and a random doctor, I think it's not a security guard, but who cares, he's pushing by her, and she fucking knees him in the crotch for whatever reason, and she's KO'd. That was it. Like, she opens her stitches or whatever and has to be rushed back to her hospital bed. And not to mention, like, you talk about when you're looking at these movies, what should we, what should we do, like, to keep continuity? What, what do the fans really want to see? Or what should they want to see? Vic and I talked on, on the last movie. You know, having Michael Myers transported the night before 
uh, Halloween on a fucking bus, which should be very low on your list of things that you should do again. They did it in this movie. Like the writers, whoever made this choice sitting around, you know what? You know what I think everyone loves about Halloween two, the original Halloween two is that, that Laurie spends the entire fucking movie in a hospital bed. That's what we should do. Yeah. Let's have her in a fucking hospital bed for the whole movie again. Brilliant. They're going to love us. Yeah, it's, I, it seems like it must have been fan service somehow, except only an idiot would yeah. think that was what fans wanted to see. <laughs> exactly. It's beyond ludicrous that anyone in the history of Halloween movies would say, I would really love to see another movie where Laurie Strode is just incapacitated in a ho- hospital bed for the entire movie. Yeah, that's great. That's what I want. It'd be like bringing Jar Jar Binks back yes. for another Star Wars movie. <laughs> exactly. Perfect analogy. It's like, you know what people really loved about the prequels? It was Jar Jar Binks. Let's make sure when we reboot this that Jar Jar Binks is back. <laughs> and playing a prominent playing a prominent role. Yeah. Yeah. For her being in the hospital the whole time, like basically is for her to sit there and have those conversations with will Patton, and it's like what was any of it for Ex- except for them to have this sort of like pondering like what is the nature of 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 fear and what is the the impact that it causes and like and laurie's eventual you know sort of like revelation that that michael like gets stronger and becomes more powerful with each passing kill which feels like bullshit mythology mythology I did like that Will Patton was back. I, I think we all thought he was dead in the, in the previous movie. Um, it's good that like they seem to clearly be because they they don't even give him one wound or backstory in this movie. They give him two. Not only did he shoot his partner by accident, so he's got that guilt, and he he frames Michael for it. He intervenes when yeah we absolutely have to talk about this uh okay in this movie the alternate history where it truly diverges from the previous movies is we agree that loomis shoots michael six times or however many times at the end of halloween's 1978 in the other movies michael just gets away at that point in this movie, in this timeline, he goes back to his home, his childhood home. He encounters these two cops. One shoots the other one. He's, you know, shares the kill with that cop. And then he goes back outside. Loomis shows up with a bunch of other cops. And there's a standoff. And in this reality, Michael is arrested instead of getting away or being killed. And. Loomis is about to execute Michael with apparently the complicity of the other police, but the Will Patton Hawkins cop character who has just killed his own partner and framed Michael for it has this moment of uh, mercy or, you know, morality, whatever you want to call it and prevents Loomis from executing if he could even do it. Who knows? 
um, executing Michael, and that's why Michael has spent the last 40 years in an institution. And apparently, this is all set up that that it's really the Will Patton Hawkins character's crusade that he's going to matter, I guess, in the next movie, because he's all fucked up in this movie, because we did leave him for dead at the end of the last movie. Jesus Christ, I just realized that we're talking about the Halloween multiverse. We really are. Yeah, we really are. I like I like Will Patton. I think he's. I mean, I, I think he's a terrific actor, just sort of generally. Um, and he he lends some gravitas to this part, and and again, like so many of the the supporting parts, he sort of makes it work, even though the dialogue is clunky and ponderous and and all that kind of stuff. Like you're you're lucky to have someone like that in a scene with Jamie Lee Curtis selling it. Yeah, he sells his his dialogue absolutely in the way that Jamie Lee Curtis does, and you know some of the younger people aren't as successful with that. Um, I'm just going to throw out quickly because I've alluded to it before. Uh, we talked about Marion, the nurse. I, I, I found it hilarious and sad that in one timeline, you know, this of course was, uh, Dr. Loomis's right hand woman in the first movie and the second movie. Um, and then she ultimately dies in H2O Halloween H2O in the original timeline. So in that timeline, she lives X number of years and Michael kills her. And in this timeline, she gets to live like another 20 years before he kills her under entirely different circumstances. I don't know. I can't think of another actress who plays the same character's death scene in two different ways in two different movies. That, that, that was that was wild. Think about that. But then it's also comical that it's almost a replay of her traumatic incident 40 years earlier because she's trapped in this car. He slams his hand on the window and she, for some reason, locks the doors, which apparently leads to the death of one of the other passengers in the car because he's like, open the doors, open the doors. But the windows are broken. So I don't know. Let's not unpack that in, in much detail. But Michael is jumping on the roof and breaking the windows exactly the way the last time she encountered him in the first movie. And in this one, she blazes away with a gun, wastes all of her ammo, gets a clean shot at him, doesn't have any bullets left, and is basically, she doesn't say this, but it's a whimper, like, oh shit. And then he just climbs onto her and, and kills her. It's one of the worst scenes in the movie. Yeah. In terms of fan service, like, yes, like, like Jamie Lee Curtis stuck in a hospital is far and away the worst bit of fan service in the movie. But second to me is I really wanted to see geriatric Michael scamper on top of a car just like he did 40 years ago. It's, it's just silly. And her line before she, she tries to shoot him and realizes she has, she's out of ammo is, this is for Dr. Loomis. Oh, yeah, that's and right. it's just awful. It's just, it's her reading is awful. The line is awful. It's, it's Meryl Streep couldn't have sold that moment. It's just terrible. And I, but that poor woman, the poor actress that they, that they saddled her with mm -hmm. that line, that scene is, is unforgivable. I think she's one of the first to, to, to bray. He dies tonight earlier too. And none of it, 
none of it works. It's it's all embarrassing. Yeah, you bring back Nurse Mary and you put her in the same situation she was in 40 years ago and the the takeaway is she sucks ass at defending herself and gets summarily killed. Wow, yeah. Really glad that you, you brought her back. Well, I'll tell you what, too. The first version of that scene was significantly better. Yeah. It was, it was more succinct. It was much mm-hmm. more tense. And frankly, it still holds up as a more frightening scene than, than that was, which I think is the cardinal sin of trying to recreate a moment to the degree that, that this was, is that like being like utterly unsuccessful. I mean, I guess I see your argument that like they tried to turn her into a, like a more pro I'm not, well, I don't know if this is your argument, but they did like try to turn her into like a more proactive figure put in the same situation. I'm not even, yeah, I wish I was making that argument because that would, that would make sense. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with, I'm with Vic. It was one of my, one of my least favorite bits. But I love that Lindsay, while that's going on, has taken the kid's candy bag, mm-hmm. emptied it out, and is filling it with bricks uh, as a as a means of constructing a weapon. Like that's mm-hmm. that's final girl shit. Like that's a that's the, what I want out of a, a proactive heroine. And I like the way she played. Uh, Richards plays the moment where he's actually got her by the throat up against the car and she doesn't look scared, you know, like she's just in fight mode and hates him and is defiant. Like she doesn't break. She doesn't crack. However, the second that she's away from him and as we usher her off screen for the rest of the movie, then she goes to pieces. And I mean, that's fine. I understand psychologically, you know, while in the heat of the moment, but you immediately undercut any sort of badass points that, that you give her because once like the people come and find her, she just keeps saying, he's still out there. And I actually found it was especially bad writing that she says that at least three times. And then you cut to her, later in another scene in the hospital and she goes, he's still out there. It's like, dude, like who would have the character repeat the same line like that many times in different scenes? It just doesn't, it's, it's bad. Not only that, but she clearly, again, you, you want good fan service. She clearly should have said happy Halloween motherfucker. And then hit it with the, with the right. full of brick. Right. I will say that that tableau is pretty damn good um, in the in the playground sequence. The playground tableau with the various masks from Halloween three, including yeah. on Marion, that was was great. But it also raises the question of why didn't the gay couple get a tableau? Like their bodies are found in a very pedestrian position and i was just wondering like did michael get bored with tableaus like what are you talking about no he he like arranges them so that like the so that like big john is like lying on little john's lap he's clearly moved the bodies around uh, because of where they were killed and he's put on a theme music for them so he's he's become tender-hearted at this point because there's nothing like disturbing about it it looks like they just died that way. It looks like he's comforting his his husband and like there's nothing creepy about it. The guy's literally just sort of 
one body is kind of in the lap of the other as though they they died together. It's actually quite sweet and romantic. I I, I agree. There's nothing creepy to it. I'd still say like it is still a tableau. It's just it's just not a scary one. <laughs> it's it's the softer side of Michael. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I, but it goes back to everything we're saying, right? That the tableau is is part of the mythology of Michael Myers. In that image of PJ Souls on the bed with the gravestone above her, is that's one of the terrifying images of the '78 Halloween. And so, if you're going to pay homage to the film, to the first film, if you're going to try and expand on Michael's character, like what you do with those moments with those tableaus is sort of important. It is. That's something you should really pay attention to. And it seems like they just acknowledged that that's a thing he does, but they didn't put any thought into it. They didn't make it scary. They didn't make the imagery something really powerful. And I, John, I agree that the, that the playground tableau is, you know, it's well done and the masks are kind of a neat little, you know, Easter egg for nerds like us. Mm-hmm. But it's got again. It's got nothing on PJ Souls with a Judith Myers gravestone above her. Yeah, it has no real psychological insight, or uh, yeah, it doesn't advance our understanding of Michael in any way, or reveal some side of his psychology. No, but it just kind of works as being disturbing, um, and, and the images work. But yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's largely due to the Halloween three masks though. I wonder like for someone with no point of reference for Halloween three, or if they were not, if they were just random masks, would you have found it effective? To be honest, I, again, I watched it with Mike Kuchak and another horror movie guy. Somebody mentioned at, you know, aloud that those were those three masks. I didn't, I didn't actually put it together the first time. So, that that it was you know the skull, the witch, and the um, pumpkin. Pumpkin, yeah. Uh, like, but I, I still thought it was cool. So I don't know what for what it's worth. And if we're talking about lowlights, like this is this is critical. And if you'll allow me to go on a bit of a rant here, Michael as Terminator, which we established in the firefighter scene that we've referenced multiple times, which objectively in a vacuum is a really fun scene. Like I enjoyed watching Michael decimate these guys that come at him with, you know, the hose and the ax and the, the saw thing. And he, I love like from a directorial and cinematography perspective and editing perspective that we, we get half of the scene from the perspective of, through one of the firefighters goggles or mask. Like it's very through a plastic point of view. Even after he's dead, we keep seeing like some of the things that are happening from like this cracked plastic perspective. I really like that. But in a larger sense, as I've said, you know, as we've discussed tonight, it removes any suspense about the outcome of any of these ordinary people trying to consider going up against Michael. We know how that's going to go. And this is one of the biggest flaws of the entire movie. Other than, and this will be the next thing I think we'll talk about 
the absurd futility of the philosophical pronouncements about what Michael means, what's really the worst thing about him, how he can or cannot be defeated. The worst thing about this movie is how they handle the shift from grounded to supernatural. There was no way, I acknowledge, you could keep making movies about this character without explaining why he could take multiple bullets and every other form of punishment. And make no mistake, he takes a hell of a beating in this film without explaining why he can endure all of that punishment without dealing with the injuries, let alone being unable to continue. You can either have every bullet miss, which this sequel does flirt with because a lot of people have shitty aim (laughs) as they fire at Michael, or you can make the jump into the supernatural. But what's funny is that the first movie seemed so staunchly determined to avoid making that jump. It had to be grounded. That was the, the catchphrase. And immediately, this movie reverses, does a 90-degree turn, and it says, okay, yeah, uh, he's supernatural. And even if you make that abrupt gear change, which is as jarring as putting the car in neutral when you're going 30 miles an hour already, what's worse is powering Michael up so much. Because, yeah, right out of the gate, he's John Wick in firefighters, and he basically establishes you're not going to win a fight with this guy no matter what kind of weapon you have. Now, maybe we unconsciously already knew that was true, but in this timeline, these movies, we hadn't seen him do that yet until they show him come out of that burning house where he was trapped at the end of the last one, dispatch all of these guys, And after that, whenever we're going to bring that to any time he squares off with someone else in this movie, the rest of the people he faces are not Navy SEALs or mercenaries or MMA stars or whoever else you might think would be a level up or two from the firefighters. Instead, it's an elderly couple, it's kids, it's middle-aged people, it's a teenager or two. How the fuck do we feel any suspense whatsoever when they're creeping around with their piddly little weapons? When the audience knows they have zero chance of getting out of any skirmish with this guy alive. Sure, we know the heroes, the leads, might have some hero armor, heroin armor, to keep them safe. And this movie probably isn't going to be above giving that to them. But we know the rando victim characters are DOA the second that they hear a weird noise at their door. And I felt that this was one of the most fundamental missteps of the movie, considering that half of the movie is watching those victim types be gradually clued in that Michael is coming after them. What John, do you think that's of that? a valid point. But I just want to say that turning around is, is 180 degrees, not, not 90 you know, I, I thought of that while I was saying it, but I didn't want to be the chump that said 360, so I went with 90. <laughs> um, no, look, like this is, this is the trap that Halloween movies sort of inevitably fall into. Like this is what the whole cult of the thorn or whatever the, the Celtic shit was, that it's like at a certain point, you just have to answer this question. And we all shit on Rob Zombie for it, but like Rob Zombie was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to answer that. He's just back. Cool. Go with it. Hey, we didn't shit on um, Rob Zombie. I think we, we came out of the first one saying 
better than we remember. And we came out of the second one being like, damn, this is pretty good. What I, what I mean is that Rob Zombie, I think recognized, like, I think that there is, I won't say we shit on Rob Zombie. We as horror fans, the horror community shit on Rob Zombie because he just dodged the question. Right. You know what I mean? Like he just, it was like, it was like, eh, I don't, I don't really care. I don't really care how Michael came by, why this continues to happen. Because you can see the, the, the path that led to, you know, weird Celtic cults and, and Dr. Loomis becoming the new head of the cult and whatever other, you know, Paul Rudd twitching his way through a movie. So as soon as you try to explain why Michael Myers is Michael Myers, he stops being as scary. But did and, this movie really try to explain why he's that way? I don't. I don't know that that's its problem. You. I mean, you said it though. It veers into the supernatural. Yeah. Well, it, they try to. They try to like write it off a little bit. They definitely like again. They drop. They spill so much ink in the screenplay about you know. Clearly, he's not just a guy, but they don't actually get into the why, right? Like, you know, there's nothing tangible about backstory about why he would be what he is. But do you, how do you guys feel about the sense that at this point, did you get the feeling we were in a superhero movie and you you needed a rocket launcher to even put a dent in this guy? So any skirmish with him becomes academic. I don't know. My, my one thought, I, I did start to have sort of like superhero-ish conversations with myself in my notes. Um, one of my notes is someone needs to cut off Michael's hands. <laughs> like that's yeah. the, like that. They're always trying to like shoot him in the chest. That is every like injury that he ever gets is like he gets shot, stabbed, hit in the head, which is where he, where he can put his mask back on. But like no one ever destroys this guy's hands, which are like the only tools that he really has at his disposal. Yes, I'd say in a sense, like I like you were definitely watching superhuman acts. I mean, like we talked about, you mentioned uh, the, the Terminator earlier, and I was like, yeah, that's like that's also apt. Like he's a killing machine in this yeah. thing, and I actually feel like that is part of the problem. Is like this is like a have your cake and eat it too situation where it's like there's another way that you can deal with this issue, which is like going back to that 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 disagreement between this film and the, and the very first Halloween is he could also just kill less people, which I know sounds crazy, but like, if that's what you want to embrace is like, this is a real guy Mm -hmm. and he's really doing this. And like this, like the fact that he's able to sort of like get away with it is like this pervasive thing. That's like, that's tormenting the community is like, have him kill less random people, like only have him kill meaningful people, you know, throughout the course of a story. But it's like, I also understand why that's not commercially viable in today's, you know, market. And yet they split the difference in the first movie. Like they definitely seem to go out of their way to, he's just a guy. And, you know, it's just, it, this is like taking it back to basics and we'll jettison all of that supernatural stuff. And they stuck with that for one movie and then they immediately floor the pedal to go right down the same road that all the other movies went in the first place. They're just like, oh, well, we're doing it our way this time. 
That's the only thing. They're just, they're going to the same place. They're just taking a different road to go there. So it kind of invalidated the entire premise of stripping it down and going, you know, like, oh, we're not going to follow all of those corny and cheesy and weird sequels that took this mythology. We're going back to, you know, the, the, the primal idea of, of the first movie. And then within 20 minutes of their second movie, they're knee deep in supernatural, unstoppable Michael and figuring out like how he's fear itself and yada, yada, all the exact same crap. If you want to be uncharitable that the other movies did as a writer. And I think I've, I've alluded to something like this in the past, those like that conversation that she has with Will Patton, right? That is every producer putting their two cents in being like, we need to understand something. We need to make rules. Like, what are the rules behind this? And it's, you spend your whole fucking life rewriting that conversation over and over and over again, trying to get it into a place where everybody like seems happy. And you just don't realize how little it actually has to do with the movie. And that's, Again, to Rob Zombie's credit, Rob Zombie was like, I'm not going to write that. I'm not going to write that scene. Like, go fuck yourself. And, uh, yeah, like, I almost think in in horror, like, that's almost the way you have to go is, you know, I'm not I'm just not going to tell you. I'm just, I just don't care what the what the rules are, and what the boundaries are. I mean, like, because... yeah, Michael Myers, is, Michael Myers is a Terminator. That's it. Yeah, but I don't even like like the, I think the Terminator thing is again one of my fundamental problems because if it truly is the Terminator, James Cameron's the Terminator and you see some character come at him with a butter knife, it's like you know, what am I rooting for? I I know what's going to happen. Um you have to keep like some sense of well maybe this character will get out of it, right? Otherwise, what are we rooting for? What's the there's nothing at stake. You're like, I know that this is a kitten with a tiny mouse just battering it back and forth. Well, we can watch the kitten torment the tiny mouse for 10 minutes. Why? You know, like you want to be, maybe the mouse will get away. Otherwise, it's not a story. There's no drama. There's no, you know, there's no possibility to it. Okay. A couple more uh, lowlights I want to throw out there to see what you guys think of. This, this sounds pretty minor and random, but it stuck, stuck out to me. I want to see if you guys noticed it. In the hospital in this movie, the morgue is seemingly right next to the daycare room. <laughs> <laughs> they, That's just standard operating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely put those two places in the same hallway. Because uh, we, we bounce between the two locations, you know, in, in the same sequence, basically. And they have not only that in the morgue, they have that dead Dr. Sartain guy laid out on a slab without a sheet over him or anything. And Allison, the granddaughter is walking in the hallway, presumably from the daycare room. And she looks right through this glass wall at this dude's junk I mean, we don't exactly see it, but it's very clear he's completely naked. So there's just no protocols for this shit. And I'm wondering, like, 
is this supposed to tell us that the situation in this hospital is so chaotic tonight that when you get a naked dead guy, you just dump him wherever, you don't even cover him with a sheet? I don't know. It didn't play well at all for me. Like, there's a couple, there's another corpse, like, the, this mother, just, she's been worrying about her son, who died in the first movie, all night, and she just, like, apparently walking down the hall, and she's like, oh, shit, yeah, there's my dead son in the next room. I guess, like, thankfully, he's not fucking butt naked, but <laughs> that, that just stood out to me for some reason. It's interesting that the, I didn't know that, that 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 mother's son was killed in the first movie. I didn't remember that, but I, I'm glad you... Because even that I thought was – that was like a whole – I mean like that that story had like three beats to it. I mean like they took time to like – there was like a dialogue scene with like her and a receptionist. Like yep. they took time to like play that whole bit out. I mean I guess it's maybe a little more satisfying if it connects to the first movie in terms of like building like this sort of cohesive world between the two. He was a pretty memorable character in the first movie. Um, and you get his voicemail in this movie. He was like the, the third wheel to the main couple in this movie. Uh, uh-huh. I presume it's the one that the, the boyfriend was leaving the message for at the, yeah. in the, the, the opening. Yeah. Yeah. We get, it, we get his, we get his phone vibrating in his pocket as he's been impaled on the fence post in the open brutal, brutal death too. Hmm. That was uh, one of the better scenes in the first movie. Well, and I would say, too, one of the things I liked about this, not to jump back to the highlights, but I thought that the way that they wove the first movie into it, especially in the in sort of the first, you know, 20, 30 minutes, connecting all those all that that tissue really worked. Like yeah. that was, again, when I talk about the, the structure feeling sort of bananas, like that's part of what worked was feeling like, oh, that's the that's the thing. And there's. And there's that character. We're bringing them back, and and feeling like this was all of a piece. I don't know that that worked for me. Me too. Uh, I was yeah, kind of excited. The hospital, the hospital protocols were bonkers. <laughs> like there yeah. shouldn't just be dead bodies laying around for people <laughs> to just stumble upon. I think this movie opens really strong. Like if we were really doing like a, a scene by scene, I would say I'm I'm with it. Like through a lot of these early scenes, and even excited by it, as I just said, you know, just like even like going back to that night and seeing the cops, and they go into the house, and there's the boot prints, and we see the hole in the window where you know the the tree branch or whatever broke it when Loomis was standing there with Bracket and, and the dead we actually get the corpse of the dog the half devoured dog like okay call it fan service but I just felt like it was connecting dots and you know tying this story into the tapestry of the first movie story and, and it was all working for me I didn't even mind you know the guy shooting his partner I mean that's kind of cool and I, I kind of liked it by the way Michael was like oh okay he's dead like you you killed him so I'm going to let him go and walk out <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually really like that I'm like I don't have to keep strangling him he's got a bullet in his throat now <laughs> you know? so he just leaves <laughs> <laughs> and you know i don't know what payoff there will be with this characters the will Patton characters tortured backstory but um it was it was just a, a good dramatic scene and apparently by the way that wasn't when they show loomis it wasn't like um i think of rogue one where they had like uh uh carrie fisher and um grand moff tarkin and it was all just a cgi there was actually an actor playing 
Loomis. It wasn't just CGI. When you see Loomis. Oh, really? I, I totally thought it was like a, a full-on like deep fake. Yeah, so did I. So did I. And like, there was another guy doing the voice who I didn't think did a great job in the first movie when you get samples of Loomis, but I actually thought in this movie it sounded actually like Donald Pleasance more. Um, they should have gotten you to do it, John. That's yeah. what you're upset about. I definitely, I'm proud of my, my Loomis. Uh, <laughs> um, let me, can I, can I ask you guys a question? Mm-hmm. Because I agree in general about the, the opening of the film and it all working, but, I feel like it's like 10 or 15 minutes before we get to Jamie Lee Curtis and Judy Greer and the, and the granddaughter in the truck. And so when, when we talk about the structure and things just, just being really disjointed and weird, who's the protagonist of this movie? There's, that's one of the problems with it. Clearly. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it Michael? I mean, yeah. it, it, it started, yes, it, Michael, it, it ends up being Allison, but Allison has just has no character. I mean, like I, I, I remember she was had a seemed to have a larger role to play in the in the first movie, um, in the 2018 version. But like she just like she has like nothing to work with. I think she's um, much this, worse like, in this it, movie. Like Anthony Michael Hall has a, has a lot more to like sort of like do like character wise and just in terms of like pulling us through the story um, than she does. But she's sort of played as like, like Allison's played as the final girl at the end of it. But like, she just like, I mean like it's like, it's like nothing, it's nothing against her. Like she just like literally has nothing to work with. She doesn't do anything. She's literally like driven to the final location. And then she basically just goes in there and reacts. I guess like Judy Greer gets a few moments more than her daughter. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that at least she tries to save the mental patient guy. That's her her big moment. She has some weird, like, discordant beats where, she, you know, her name is Karen, and there's a scene where she is being what we call a Karen, which I don't know what the point of that was. She's ranting about, don't you have security guards? And, you know, it's kind of a throwaway beat. But, like, I, I was wondering, are they thinking that's funny or something? And, and for a while, she leads people in the wrong direction. Like, she's actually the one that keeps telling Tommy he's going to... Oh, yeah, we should talk about this. All right, so she represents the perspective that it's all about Lori and that Michael is going to inexorably come after Lori, even though there's no logical reason in this world for Michael to have any reason to target Lori whatsoever. And I think the movie lands on that interpretation and other characters ultimately agree with that perspective and disprove her, her statement that like, you know, no, actually this isn't about Michael and Lori except to Lori. Like Lori thinks that for some reason it's her fault, which I didn't understand. Like what, like what should she have done that wouldn't have caused all these um, chain of events to occur? Put a pin in that. But she is kind of the reason why Tommy believes that the escaped inmate who shows up at the hospital has to be Michael because Karen told him that Michael would come to the hospital after Lori. I mean, it's it almost is like they have to remind us that Michael and Lori are not actually brother and sister. <laughs> right. There's just yeah. like they work 
so hard in these really obvious ways to hit expositional points. And if mm-hmm. Michael and Lori aren't actually brother and sister, and if Michael's not actually just hunting Lori Strode, why are we following these people? <laughs> they they have taken it upon themselves that they're going to be the ones to stop Michael, which I understand. But yeah, the mythology of this and the first movie, as I understand it, is that they are saying they really hit this note in this movie that all Michael cares about really is going back to his house. He will prowl around. He'll go hunting. He'll kill people along the way. He's into that, but he has no other motivation. He has no goal. He has no objectives. He doesn't care about specific people. He is just going home. He just wants to go home and stare in the window and look at himself. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's worth note noting too. Like this movie does backflips and mentions multiple times. And this is retconning. This is new that Michael and yeah, it was even confusing, but I've pieced together that prior to even killing his sister, because he went away to the hospital after killing his sister. He wasn't hanging around the house after he killed the sister. He would stand at her window while she was alive and just kind of look out because that's the thing. And the, this movie beats it to death, both in dialogue and in like they, they create a juxtaposition at the end where Michael is looking out the window or is he just looking at his own reflection and Lori is looking out the window or is she looking at her own reflection? And I, I saw some posters and stuff like marketing materials, like somebody decided, Oh yeah, this is all about like the blurring of lines between Michael and Lori and the duality or, or whatever, even though, yeah, again, in this world, they have no tangible connection other than like that hour and a half they spent together. And now the hour and a half they spent together in 2018. Holy shit. I have to just really quickly say, cause that just reminded me and it's worthy of some note that the next movie is supposed to be post COVID like multiple years later. Does yeah, that strike you guys that. as interesting? I, it, it actually does to me. That's a big if I don't think that on its own is particularly interesting. No. Hmm. Well, and like just to go back to the logistics, because we're dealing in this very grounded world, even though it has a supernatural quality, Michael is at the moment in a house surrounded by police officers with the body of a of a person that he's just murdered. So let's talk about the ending, because I think we're running short on time here. So the mob is uh, poised to pounce on him, and Karen... Uh, leads him there after he dispatches Allison's boyfriend, which I definitely enjoyed both as a kill and just because that, that boyfriend guy had it coming and it was just kind of stupid. Like this is very stupid. The fact that they go to that house, like the boyfriend and his dad and they bring Allison along on this pointless visit to Michael's house inevitably results in their pointless deaths. Like, what did they think they were going to do? I I guess, again, more characters that think, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, that, you know, going in there with, like, a gun or two, uh, a handgun or two, they're just, they're going to execute Michael uh, if they run across him. Well, 
Well, well, Lonnie was poised to do it because he, as they put it, like he survived like a face to face encounter. Yeah, which when basically, he was like, pissing his pants him, on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, which just involved him seeing Michael, and then suddenly Michael was gone. Yeah, exactly. But, like, I forget at one point, like someone actually sets him up that way. Like he's positioned as a like someone who has like insight into like Michael's like persona. I think even he says that he's like he's like he's like I I like the the implication is like I know this guy. Like I had a face to face encounter with him. So it's like he's gonna gonna go in there and take care of business, and he's being this sort of like paternal character, like at that moment, like making the like the kids stay behind. And it was kind of funny when he realizes before. in the car, he's like, "What the fuck did I bring my son here for?" And yeah, well, you did, and he gets killed. So congratulations. It's annoying. But but yeah, I'm I'm with you. And then the, so it it seems that there's a. You know, Allison, like, kind of, like, at some point, like, kind of leads him, leads Michael into the path of, of her mother. Um, and then, like, encourages, like, her mother to, like, stab him in the back with a pitchfork. They actually did a good job of placing that pitchfork some, like, a, like a half an hour earlier in the film. Um, I, I appreciate the restraint to wait that long to bring it back. They waited a long um, time on that pitchfork. And you, and you can't go wrong with the with the pitchfork in the back. Like that's a that's just a that's a classic. So <laughs> they had that, and then yeah, she leads him out to the to the to the vigilantes out in the streets. And the vigilantes like they're not just like teed up to attack him. Like they full on attack him. I mean that's that's where Tommy like that's where Tommy gets it. Um, you know, Michael continues to just like take them all out one by one. So I think like eventually he just cleared them out but there's definitely some geography confusion that i have yeah, around so, the whole ending ending bit of it yeah what apparently happens like everybody the first responders in this case and uh allison and everything they're they're all grouped around the front door of this house which we all know very well because this is the fucking myers house and somehow with all of this activity around the first floor Michael is able to be almost teleport himself up to the bedroom and kill Judy Greer, kill Karen. How did he get up there? I don't know. I mean, they, they explain that in the movie is like, that's his superpower, man. It's like, you think he's like going to be in one place and he pops up somewhere else. Yeah. They'll establish in the next movie. Oh, well you didn't know about the back door. Or he climbed up the trellis into the window. I mean, and that's fine. And, oh, okay, I want to I say, I, I want to give them a bit of credit. After the end of the first movie, I had no idea how they were going to have Michael survive. But the combination of, I assume that, that he opens a door, like uh, like a almost like a, a sliding door that you would have on a, a kiosk somewhere. Um, and he comes out from behind that. And I assume that they established that in the, in the last movie. I'm not going to go back and double check, but that, and the idea that like, we didn't think of that. Well, what if the fire department just comes and puts out the fire? Like, I think they sold it to me. I didn't think it was possible, but they actually sold it to me. How Michael gets out of that, the predicament he's in at the end of the first movie. So props Uh for that. That didn't feel terribly contrived or forced or 
you know, like the combination of, oh, well, she had that little back room where she, her weapons were, and he went behind that and, you know, didn't, didn't fry. Um, and then the fire department comes to respond to the situation quickly. Um, that worked for me. So I don't know. Unlike the, unlike the end of the film, which completely stretches credulity to the breaking point. <laughs> this film. Yeah. Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. The end of the end of this movie is nonsense. Like it's, it's like the end of the, again, the Marcus and the Spall, uh, uh, Friday the 13th, you know, it's just, we're going to, we're going to come up with a scare and it doesn't matter if it here, here they decide to just throw uh, caution to the wind and just make it and just try and do something scary, which is just like the one place that it doesn't work. It doesn't end up being scary partially because like it plays out, it tries to play itself out in like an operatic manner where it's, then they make a big to do about Judy Greer's death as, as though I've had any like emotional attachment to her from what they've built out. But I guess she's like the tenuous connection between Laurie Strode and and our and and her granddaughter. It doesn't even yeah. matter. Like as far as the characters go, we're not like, oh man, like Allison and Laurie are gonna be like really motivated next movie because Karen's dead. We don't need that at all. Like they've already killed the dad and the husband, which was kind of, you know, you would think would be enough. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't land. It doesn't ha- pack much of a punch that she gets killed there. And and, and it's like co- completely implausible how he how he pulls it off. So, yeah, I I will sum up my thoughts and I want to hear, you know, your your closing thoughts. We could keep talking. There's like lots of ins and outs and nuances and little things positive and negative about this movie. But, uh, you know, we'll, there's only so much time. I will say that to me, the roller coaster ride was working for a period of time. And I was, you know, uh, looking past the, the warts and the, the, you know, to keep the metaphor going, like the, the jolts in the ride where the cushions weren't, weren't up to the task or we took a little lurch here and there. And then, at the end of the ride, I, I just, by the end of it, I'm just like, nah, this is, I want off. This is just, this is lame. And I can't put my finger on exactly how or when that happened. But um, overall, I still mostly like that, like the movie, again, grading on a curve for a slasher movie. But these two movies the 2018 one and this one they have they suffer from a lot of the same problems having to do with writing having to do with characterization and and heavy-handed themes and exposition and just basic stuff you know um keep it from they they keep them from being objectively good movies in the year 2021 with our standards for you know what what we see on TV what we see with movies but if you look at it from a longer perspective, look, looking back over 40, 50 years of slasher movies, they look pretty good. So how do you reconcile those two things? I don't know. But long story short, 
I don't love either of these movies, but I think this movie at least was a true slasher movie. And so tip of the tip of the cap there. I think you get, you get credit for being different and for trying to do something different. That doesn't excuse you from having to do something good. You know, like it's, you get, you know, you get a, you get a C, like you pass because I, I haven't seen a slasher film quite like this. I haven't seen a slasher film with this scope and you are even, even doing so bluntly, at least you have some thematic ideas that you're wrestling with that you're trying to bring to the fore. You're not doing it gracefully. It's not organic to the story. It doesn't work in its in, in how it sort of hits to the climax. But there's a sense in which I'll give you, I'll still give you, again, I'll give you points for at least swinging at it, at least trying to make that part of it. But yeah, it's it's trying will get you so far, but at a certain point, you actually have to succeed. And the the writing Jamie Lee Curtis, writing Laurie Strode out of the film for 60% of it, 70% of it, is an unforgivable mistake, given that you have an existing template of a movie where they did that and it and it hurt the film. So, like, how do you how do you do that? I don't know. It's, it's, of all misguided choices, that might be near the top of the list. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating to to live, to to work in the Halloween multiverse and not be aware that part of the reason Halloween two doesn't work better than it does is because you put Laurie Short in the hospital and then focused on a bunch of other people that we didn't care about. Right. So it's yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a frustrating bag, partly because the things that are good are really good and it just makes the things that are bad stand out all the more and the this is for dr lewis line is just a crater <laughs> oh. i i will say i i i mean i'm certainly with you guys in the sense that i find that this i find that it 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 took off well like i was sort of invested in a certain point like at the movie just kind of like flat lines and like i it lost its it lost its shape um, it lost any sort of distinction and like it lost my, my in- engagement. I am like especially surprised because like I was really excited when uh, David Gordon Green came on this because um, I was certainly a fan of like a big fan of like Eastbound and Down, um, Vice Principals, um, and even like some of like his, you know, like his dramas. Like I like Prince Avalanche quite a bit. Hmm. Um, he seems to really excel at these films where you have these characters who have sort of minor key lives who have very like small stakes, but are acting upon those stakes in kind of outlandish, like outsized ways. And that's where like, he really like thrives and manages to find both like comedy and drama. And so I find it interesting that when you give him material where the actual stakes are, are life and death that suddenly Maybe it's the fact that that the that the stakes like you know like overtake these like outsized characters that he has because there's still this like attempt to put these characters into his stories, but but something just like doesn't add up about it, and I don't know. It's just like it's a it's a bit of a disappointment to see it going this way, like including like the the collaboration with I mean that stuff is also like a lot of it is collaborative with with Danny McBride. 
So like even just in terms of the people putting this together, it's been a, a bit of a, a disappointment. And I'm certainly I will watch the the next film, but I can't say that I'm necessarily really excited about it. Nor was I especially excited about about this one. One thing I do want to shout out is that I, a one long-term character whose arc I've been excited to see is the development of the real estate market in Haddonfield. It's been thrilling to watch the Myers house go from like a solid, like middle-class home to being like an abandoned shack to entering its like haunted house, like spiderweb phase. And now it's been totally turned around, reno- like renovated. I will say that I did notice the second time around that if, as you watch the movie, Little John and Big John are actually the town realtors, and you can see their ads on bus benches in scenes Holy earlier shit. in the film. So they've taken the Myers house, and they've they've told, and it's, it's thriving. So that's good to see. I did not notice that. That's that's a great little detail. I do feel like we've given those guys short shrift because uh, they do have an interesting part of the film and their uh, interactions with the bratty trick-or-treaters and everything else it's quirky it's it's notable and i i like their dynamic but you just know that they're fucking doomed it it just it's it's you never for a second are like oh well maybe no. big john and little john will get out of this somehow no of course not you know so uh, I, I do want to say I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I want to tack on one more thing that I, I lost my my plot a little bit when I was talking about David Gordon Green. But one thing I mm-hmm. did want to bring up is that David Gordon Green is also not only is he doing Halloween Ends, he's also signed on to be doing The Exorcist. What yeah. is it? It's a trilogy for yep. Peacock. It's it's not it's not a series. It's movies, and I think it's it's multiple movies. And he's also doing the Hellraiser uh, TV series. Mm-hmm. He's the EP on that. So like it's interesting that he's segued into taking like taking on the rebirth of all these horror franchises. Um, he's committed. He's committed to the genre, definitely. Um, and I, I watched him on. Uh, he was on Joe Bob, uh, the Shutter. Great, fantastic. Recommended to everyone, of course. Uh, the last drive-in show uh, on Shutter. And uh, I watched him. I didn't watch Jason Bloom, but yeah, it was very much about uh, Jason Blum. The, it was all about the uh, this movie and slashers and stuff was the theme of the evening. And I, I definitely got the sense that he loves this subgenre and he feels like he's uh, he's trying to master it and the timing of it and um, you know to make it unique make these movies his own and i i respect the endeavor and i think that there's aspects of these of these films that uh, that 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 really work and that pop and that distinguish themselves and i like him as a as a filmmaker and i like Danny McBride apparently by the way like they're all multiple people involved with this went to the same very second or third t- tier you know, not to insult anyone, uh, film school in North Carolina. And it was like a very hands-on program. And it was something that a lot of people have come out of, you know, if you didn't get into USC or NYU, you could still get a a practical education at this little film school. And uh, that's where some of these relationships were formed. And that's why you get kind of odd bedfellows like, you know, Danny McBride doing a, 
a movie like this. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't begrudge anyone involved for, for going for it. I just, I think that subtlety is lost here. And thuddingly obvious, heavy-handed thematic work is probably less impactful than something that superficially seems empty, but overall, like down the road, you, you start to see, oh, well, yeah, this kind of captured this angst or that problem, or, you know, it's representative of what people were afraid of or processing at that time. Uh, what doesn't age well is stuff that is really overtly cramming some kind of political or social thought down the audience's throat. And not that, that those are the biggest issues with these movies, but I, I just, yeah, it, it's just part of the, the mosaic that, that, that makes, that highlights their, their weaknesses. Whereas, you know, it's fair to say that the bread and butter of horror movies are like, does the antagonist cool? And does he, kill people in, you know, impactful ways. But this, these movies are a success when it comes to those criteria. So that's kind of where I'm at. All right. Uh, any, any, any other final thoughts before we call it a night? It's a complicated movie. Like this is a complicated conversation. And I really, mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember when we had our first, your first question of like, what did you think of the movie? Like what's your, what's your 30 second review of it? And my answer was, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to have this conversation because I really wanted to hash it out and I wanted to sort of decide how I feel about it. And I think that my feelings about the things that I like and the things that I don't like are a little more solidified. But that doesn't help me come out of it going, this is a better movie than I thought it was or it's a worse movie than I thought it was. It's still just a really mixed bag of things some of which are really good and some of which are really bad. And that's a, it's a, it's just a weird cocktail. I think that's not what we usually get when we talk about movies on this podcast. Like normally we're talking about things that we're really passionate about. We're talking about the witch, we're talking about the void, uh, or we're talking about, you know, Jason goes to hell and we're having a blast talking about how fucking awful it is. And this is neither of those. I've had a blast talking about the things that I hate about it. And I've been fascinated talking about the things that, that, are sort of interesting, but a lot of it just feels frustrating. Like, it's like, I want either be better or be worse. You know, it's to to live in this weird middle ground. Just it's, it's, I don't know. It's frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's very lukewarm. It's very, uh, it's sort of, sort of a shrug. Can't disagree. Yeah. I mean, it's not so entirely forgettable, or unworthy of discussion that where you're, we're just like, well, yeah, I mean, what do we say about this mediocrity? It's not mediocre. As Vic said, you know, there's a, there's a degree of swing for the fences here. You know, there's the ambition and, and, and that makes it interesting. And I do think that who knows how history will treat these movies and maybe through, you know, the lens of a few more years down the road, it will look better. It will look worse. Uh, but I do know that my final thought is the execution of anything that required subtlety or sophistication or nuance is poor. 
and the execution of things that were visceral and on one level simple, but you know, fundamental to this kind of subgenre. Those the execution of those kinds of scares and moments, like namely kills and so on, and how Michael moves around and how they photograph him and you know, those basics. I really like the way the films approach that. So yeah, mixed bag. I, I'm with you on that, Vic. And you know, I guess I'm sorry we we couldn't either anoint it or bury it, but uh, that's that's the movie we're dealing with. I guess we'll have to leave it there. But we're going to be talking a lot more about slasher movies moving forward because. As uh, about 80% of our podcasts up to this time, you know, dating back 85 episodes now, <laughs> the, the slasher movies are our, our bread and butter, and uh, we are not done with it, and we are going to really definitively weigh in on what is the greatest slasher movie of all time. I am excited to begin this journey with Vic, with Rich and with all of you who are listening. So for tonight, I say farewell. I'm John Evans, and Vic, Rich, any final goodbyes to our loyal fans? Guys, holy shit are we about to get into this. Like, I hope you guys are fucking ready to dive into the slasher <laughs> film genre. This is, again, this is, we're going to get into, like, our normal format. This is just, this was just a one-off where we really wanted to talk about this film just came out we are the every uh, every night is halloween crew we couldn't just let this one slide by but like yeah it's i wish you could have been privy to the conversations we've had about slasher films up to this point but you're going to be privy to a whole lot of it going forward so get excited for that guys it's going to be really fun not if I have anything to say about it i'm only going to be talking about this movie every episode <laughs> every week and i will see you all here to talk about it <laughs> this disappointing family member of a movie. At least we've eliminated this one. We know that we have not found the greatest slasher movie of all time. Confirmed. There you go. There you go. Every night is Halloween kills. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, thank you all for listening. We will be back soon. Happy fucking Halloween, motherfuckers. Uh-huh.